Parables are great ways to sort of get a picture in your mind of something that's true, something that's important. And for me, questions help a lot. So I, I, anytime, even when Ben is teaching, I'll sit and go, well, what question is he answering? What question has he asked? What question might I want to ask him after the service? And, and often um, the teaching is really well structured that the questions that get set up in the beginning get posed and answered later. So for the first two parables, you remember the foolish farmer and the foolish servant. The question behind the foolish farmer was someone came to Jesus and said, um, Jesus, my brother won't share the inheritance. What should I do? And he gets told the story about a farmer who builds bigger and bigger barns and then finds out that that's actually his last harvest and he's not going to be there for those barns. Set the context. The foolish servant, Peter asked Jesus, you know, how many times do I have to forgive these people around me? Jesus said, well, let me tell you this story about this servant who owed more than could ever be paid to a king who was powerful enough to actually be owed more than ever could be paid and gracious enough to forgive what could never be paid. And then that saved servant refused to forgive. Today, there's not a question stated in the text that I'm going to use from Matthew 7, but I see an implicit question there, which is why I came to this text as I was thinking about what I want to share. The question that I see in this text is, Jesus, how do I stop from making a mess of things that are really important to me? How do I avoid a catastrophe? What is going to cause catastrophe in the things that are most important to me? So let's just jump right into the text, Matthew 7. Jesus has an answer. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had a foundation on rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them in practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I think this is vivid. I mean, I, I, I visualized when I was thinking, trying to find a picture for this, like an avalanche, like a snow avalanche. Like once you see it let loose, it's just going, there's no stopping it. But, you know, I found this picture of a house built on sand that looks precarious, and maybe it's been in place for a long time. It'll stay in place for a long time, but what, what, why would anybody put it there? So let's step back. What are the pieces of the illustration? Let's say the house is what's important to you. The lasting things that you want to make of yourself, the things that have permanence, the things that you intend to do with your life. The foundation is what we got to look for. Like what foundation do we want to put this on? And the storm, I think, is inevitable. If the last couple of years haven't proven it, like nothing else will, there are going to be things that come that will not be what you want, not what you expect, not even easy to deal with, and it's going to shake you to your foundation. What makes a good foundation? Well, you could say that sand is really just a bunch of little rocks, but they lack cohesiveness. A foundation has to have integrity. A good foundation will be plumb, square, and you have to be well attached to it. Foundation is also going to set up boundaries. Like, you know, this house here is off the foundation to a great degree. You may not be able to go everywhere you want. Where can I find a foundation that is worth trusting, investing in, and using? I was thinking that, you know, this is such an obvious illustration. Like, how can anybody ever take a whack at this? But listen to the kinds of arguments you hear all the time. 
Sand? Are you afraid of sand? Do you hate sand? What's wrong with sand? Why do you think that rock is the only place to build a house? You have rock, so you're privileged in your rock. Why do you disprivilege people who don't happen to have the sand that you think is so important? And by the way, did you know that with new technology, sand can be made just as good as rock? I think your thinking is way too narrow. You should expand your thinking. You should allow yourself to be built on sand, on rock. It's up to you. That's a little silly, but I really thought this was an obvious thing until I heard how people might argue it. Why is your foundation important? This is another thing that I, I tried to explain in the first service. I'm going to try again. It's something I, I found, and, and it kind of hit me right between the eyes because I'll confess, I put a lot of reliance on my intellect. I, I just think that I'm a logical, clear-thinking person. I can learn. I can apply logic. I'll figure it out. I'm an engineer by training. It's what we do. But a guy named Jonathan Haidt wrote a book he called The Righteous Mind. And he said, intuitive, intuitive judgment precedes moral reasoning. Intuitive judgment precedes moral reasoning. Reasoning. He said that a lot of people will go post hoc with their, in their, their thinking. They act on what they believe is right, and then they justify it. He did a lot of studies. Now, I'll warn you, by the way, if you look this guy up, read his books, I find him very enlightening, but he's an atheist. So his founding, his foundation for what he's saying, I don't agree with at all. But it doesn't mean we can't find common cause in his observations. He observes things, and I just laugh. He's looking for an uh, evolutionary reason for what I call divine design. And he just throws the divine design away. But his observations are really insightful. And he's written some other books, too, that I, I just really found helpful. And he uses this illustration of a rider on an elephant. Now, the rider is your intellect. And you like to think you're in charge. The elephant is your moral intuition. And it's actually going where it wants in fact, the rider spends a lot of its time justifying why the elephant went where it went. And when we look around us and I say, someone says, hey, this is right, and I say, this is right, and you say, well, exactly the opposite, it's because our elephants have gone in different directions, and we spend all our time shouting at the rider, hey, hey, be logical. Their elephant's going one way, our elephant's going another way, because they have different foundations. Your foundation is really, really important. Where does this come from, this moral intuition? It's, it's very early in life. Uh, one of the hate studies showed that pre-verbal children have a moral intuition, a pre-verbal child. They did these experiments with puppet shows, and there was a puppet trying to climb, and there was one puppet helping him, and one puppet, puppet hitting him. So an uh, infant, a child, very, very low uh, cognitive ability, but you know, observing the world, can look at this and they track eye motion and they can tell the small child finds the helper unremarkable and the hinderer is shocking to them. And then you go a little further, you later present those puppets that were clearly identified as the helping and hindering and the child will prefer to play with the helper and will avoid the hinderer. It's an indication that even before you begin to articulate what's right and wrong, you know that some things are good and some things are bad. 
they've done this with college students as well, and Haidt uh, called this thing moral dumbfounding. They came up with these really bizarre, and I won't go into them because they're kind of vulgar examples of things people could do. And uh, he said, was this right or wrong? And invariably, the odd things that you would say somebody might have done, they go, well, that's wrong. You go, why? They don't know. Haidt said it's because we have a very narrow range in the United States of moral criteria. The popular culture will tell you that there's really only two things that matter, care and fair, care and fair. Do I harm, is this doing harm, that care, care, harm? Is it fair, equal? And there's just such more. Our soul cries out for so much more. Our moral intuition is so much broader, but our society has tried to define it in just two notes, just two notes. So, oh, I didn't bring, my, my, what do I think the foundation is that I will bet it all on? We sang the songs, we, we, we celebrated every week, but I, I have just two theses, and, and I could just state them and we could go home, but I'm going to go further. First, the gospel. The full gospel is everything we need to solve every problem. Second, as we, the more we absorb the gospel and the, the, the more we are true of it, clear of its truth in every circumstance, in every situation, the more we must saturate ourselves with grace. I mean, there's nothing so annoying as someone who knows the right answer and really wants you to know they know the right answer. You need to saturate yourself with grace, especially the more grounded and better, better connected to the gospel you are. Now, there's a little risk here. And uh, you know, our family watches some movies. There's a few movies that we watch we have favorite lines from. And one movie we see every once in a while we have on DVD is called uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Now, our favorite line from the movie is actually something else. But there's a scene in the movie, if you might remember, the father of the bride, his name is Gus Portocolis, is in a car with these two girls in the back and his daughter rolling her eyes. And she, he says, give me a word, any word, and I show you how that word is from the Greek and, and then he goes through this tortured thing to explain how the word kimono is really Greek. But I hesitate to use this, but it rings so true. You look at the, the thesis and the theories of society, and they say, give me a problem. Any problem in my pet idea is going to solve it. And I wonder to myself, am I just responding in kind when I say, well, my idea is the gospel solves it all. And I got to be honest with you, I was tempted and have been tempted and will probably still be tempted again to de depend on my intellect, to depend on other ideas and say the gospel is good for the central problems, but I need to add all this stuff to it. And the more I look at it, you know what? That's really a bad idea. And maybe it's because I have too limited a view, too narrow a view of the gospel. I don't see it in its entirety. Now, some of that might be because we've been trained, if any of you have been trained in like, you know, the ABCs had, you know, the ABC, admit, believe, confess, ABC. Um, Roman Road, I, I know the Roman Road by the numbers, 323, 623, 58, 10, 9, and 10. I don't know if you knew those, but if you can go through the book of Romans and, you know, 323, 623, 58, 10, 9, and 10, and you, the, the idea is you hand someone a Bible and you read those numbers to them and they read, the, they read the words, and that's the outline of the gospel. But the gospel's so much more. I like, a, I like a summary, a gospel framework, a set of hooks you can hang things on, a set of notes you can hear that Ben's used. We are God's good world, ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son, recreated by the Spirit. R's and S's, you can think through it. 
Why is this important? What's all there? Well, we have to start with the beginning. In the beginning, God. God created, and he said it was very good. This is in contrast to, in the beginning, I. And I'm all that matters. I'm really just a sentient accident if I don't believe I have a creator. I must define what is good for me. I must define what is true by speaking my truth based on my experience. I bring my experience. I must define why I'm valuable by my accomplishments, by my this, by my that, by the things I choose. It's wrong. It's a wrong starting point. When you start in the wrong place, you can end up in the wrong place. It's like maybe you have one foot on that rock, that big foundation, but you're going to put a foot in the sand. It's very hard to find common cause with people who have a foot over there in the sand. Another key gospel note, ruined by sin. I think, I think we spent a lot of time teaching on this. I won't, I won't we, we spent a lot of time singing about it. Boy, was it true. We spend time every week confessing it. We need to know this. But sin is a three-way train wreck. I'm internally broken. And I think that's why the gospel resonates with so many people, because you might be able to argue about a lot of things, but you know that inside you are not what you want to be. And you know that when it gets set right, you want more of that. You really, really want it. And that's why the gospel rings true with people who have accepted it, because they realize it's fixing what's broken in them. And then you can fix what's broken outside with other people, because if you're broken inside, you can fake it with other people, but there's going to be fractures with other people. And then the last thing that I don't know how you would ever fake besides just saying it doesn't matter is your relationship with God. When you stand before a holy and just God and realize you're broken inside, you're broken with others, you realize you're broken with him. And things go very badly. Things go very, very badly. The song that I asked them to sing, um, Rock of Ages, there's a line in there. It's a double cure that we need. We are cured of both the guilt of sin and the power of sin to control us. This is something you need to put your faith in, foundational. Redeemed by the Son. Not by ourselves, not by our intellect, not through science, not through technology, not through the best governmental systems, not through education, not through progress, not because things will just get better, not by liberating yourself from the constraints that are put on you by evil people who don't know your best interest. We are saved by the Son as an act of the Father who made us and loves us more than we can ever imagine. There's a guy named Sarabhamari. I'm sure I'm saying that wrongly. Iranian immigrant, initially a Muslim, became an atheist when he came to the U.S., eventually became a Christian over a long period of time. It took him a decade to become a Christian. And he was interviewed and he was asked, like, what's like the biggest change? Because they were looking at like, you know, the U.S. versus Iran, atheism versus Christianity. And he said, the freedom in Christianity not to be responsible for divining my own value, my own worth, and what I need to do with my life. It was given to me as a gift. We're more than sentient anomalies, cosmic accidents, cosmic accidents, and we're not in charge. But what makes it so hard for us to hear this, to see this, to apply this? Why might you say the gospel and? Well, one of my ideas is that maybe we're not clearly hearing the gospel notes. 
Maybe we're not clearly hearing the gospel notes. Because if you think about it, we're surrounded by a lot of noise. And, And again, one of the motivations I had for even thinking through this and teaching through this is that when I look at the nightly news or I read Facebook or I, I look around, I see, I see a dumpster fire. I see things that are a train wreck. I see things that I know are wrong. You know, the elephant that I ride on is just charging over these things going wrong, wrong, wrong. And I'm tempted to get angry. I'm tempted to get indignant. I'm tempted to get hopeless. I'm tempted to say, well, the gospel's good, but I need to add something else to really help people. It's a bad direction to go. It's a bad, bad, bad direction to go. One of the things that uh, the, the studies of your sort of moral elephant showed was that your moral elephant is very happy to self-justify. So um, Height tells a story of when he's actually writing the, the, the chapter on, like what happens in your brain, they do a PET scan when you're told things you agree with and you don't react and you're told something you disagree with and your, your brain is heightened. And then you are told the argument that justifies your belief and you get a dopamine hit. I feel good. <laughs> that thing that, that thing they say. He said he's writing about this and thinking about it and, and he, he, he was uh, confronted by his wife. He was writing early in the morning and his wife comes in and says something that maybe many husbands have heard. Is it too much to ask that when you finish making breakfast, you put your dishes away? So this was a moral judgment about something they had agreed to that he hadn't lived up to. It was an attack on him. And his answer, instead of, you're right, I'm sorry, or actually, you know, it's not that important to me, and it's important to you, or something accurate was, well, look, I have this writing deadline, and did you know that I fed the baby, and then I had to, and, I, and he said he went down this without even thinking and justify his own actions. You are so prone to justify your own actions if you are not hearing clearly. So we're approached with what I'd call a cacophony of input. And a cacophony is a big word that means just a lot of noise. Now, if you go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever else is feeding you all this noise, sometimes that's exactly what it sounds like to me. And I can't sort out, like, what's going on? Rick Beato is a YouTube star, and, and, and Beato's musically a musical prodigy. He's a jazz musician. He's a producer. He's, 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 he's a musical guy. So uh, Rick, the father, realized at a young age that his child was actually gifted in an unusual way. Maybe one to three in 10,000 people have not just absolute pitch where they can be given a note and then work from it, but perfect pitch where if they're given a set of notes like that, they can hear them, hear them all. And, and Rick realized his son had that when um, he was talking about, when his son was very young, talking about music, trying to teach his son a little music, and his son, I, I, that's the note from the beginning of the Star Wars theme. So his son actually had named the notes by where he'd heard them. So, uh, so Rick gave, you know, well, that's actually a G sharp, <laughs> and, and this is actually the key of B flat, and explained it all. So he has, he has musical theory training. There's a, another video where Dylan is explaining how he had to teach himself to do that. He goes, well, you know, the low note and the high note are easy. It's all the ones in the middle that are hard. And once you get more than three or four in the middle, it's really hard. But if you practice, well, again, he has a uh, gifted ear, a gifted ear. And they say this is developed by the time somebody's three. 
that they actually have associated all the, the, the tones that they can hear with different buckets in their brain and just identify them naturally. That's part of how you learn to speak. You might learn to speak music, basically. But if you progress then with musical training, you can do this. Where am I going with this? I think the gospel is a set of notes that are beautiful. I think they address everything. And I think that if we saturate ourselves with grace, we don't make ourselves the focus of everything, but we, we ground ourselves, we stand firmly on the gospel without a foot out in the sand, that we can sort out all the noise that we hear around us. Just the, the cacophony, the big cluster chord, and we can sort out the notes and understand the gospel truth in everything we hear. In addition to just, does something harm you? Or is it fair? There's many more aspects to what's right and wrong. Is this a loyalty or a betrayal? Am I respecting authority that's proper authority or am I undermining it? Is this a sacred thing that I should address with sanctity? and set aside and make holy? Is not doing what I'm instructed to do in this area or that area actually degrading myself and the people around me? What's holy? The things that are holy will inspire awe and worship. Many people just know this. Again, people who don't have any grounding in theology will describe experiences of awe and worship. Music does it for some people. Nature does it for some people. Science does it for some people. As God's people, God should do it for us every day and all day. We should be inspired and awe-driven by what God reveals to us. Well, last, liberty and oppression. Liberty. So those, those are the six things that actually make up a moral framework that you can evaluate. It's more than just, do we mutually agree to do this thing that may or may not be right? There's a six-dimensional way you can evaluate it. And, and again, our, our society, the cacophony that comes at us will say that, reverse them. What you find lib liberating will actually oppress you. You will become a slave to that appetite that you adopt because you think it's liberated you. And what you might call oppressive is actually the freest you can be. Sarabamani saying, you know, when I, when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord, Lord and Savior, I was free from all the stress I'd put on myself. So as I, as I wrap this up, let's just quickly go through the, the Beatitudes and see if we can pick out some things that might cause grace saturation and hit a gospel note in, in the very famous section of the, of the teaching just preceding Jesus saying, bet everything on this foundation and you won't collapse. So where do you start? You start with spiritual poverty. Acknowledge what you lack, what you need. Understand your situation clearly. Don't think that it's going to come from within you. It needs to be coming from out. You are impoverished. You're not going to do this on your own. More on what's lost. When we look around and we say, well, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. Darn straight, it's wrong. It's terrible. What could be and what is are so far apart. What, what, what are often told is, is horrific. It really is horrific. Question is not, is it wrong or right? Could it be better? But how do we fix it? Mourn, but then become meek. I, I love the idea that a war horse can be meek. Meek is not power, powerless. Meek is approaching something with a mild and graceful manner, not angry, not violent, 
not self-serving. Seek righteousness. Seek what's right, not self-righteousness, but true righteousness. And be hungry for it. Then check, your, check yourself. What are your attitudes and what are your motives? Be merciful. Extend grace. Be pure in what you want to do. And then what can we do? What do we do when we get to the bottom of this? It's not on the screen, but you become a peacemaker. You can actually not just avoid the catastrophe in your own life. You can aid with reconciling and bringing clarity and purpose and healing to the catastrophes around you from people who weren't perhaps not as fortunate as you when they began, weren't exposed to things that you know about, have only found out the truth more recently in life, maybe knew the truth and abandoned it and just made a train wreck of things. You can be the agent of change, but not by driving your mind to a smarter place, but by integrating that elephant that is the thing that's pushing you around with God's truth. Be diligent in the care and feeding of your elephant. Please, please don't just let Sunday morning be the one time that you speak truth to your own internal moral compass. You have to repeat it to yourself daily. You have to repeat it to yourself frequently, or you will surely start to join the other herds of elephants that are around you that are your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and just wander off into the weeds. Don't depend on your intellect. Don't make the mistake of seeing a shadow and saying, that's a rock I'm going to build something on. And be really, really clear with yourself that the more clarity you get in discerning those gospel notes like Dylan could pick out of the cord, the more you saturate it with grace. Because just being right is not enough. Being right in a grace-filled way is what really makes a difference. So thanks for your time.